Hello and welcome back to The Hated and the Dead. The podcast has now been downloaded 600 times in 35 countries. So please keep recommending the podcast to others by sharing it on social media. Boris Yeltsin is the subject of today's episode. If you haven't heard of him, you will definitely have heard of his successor as President of Russia, Vladimir Putin. Boris Yeltsin was the first President of Russia from 1991 until his resignation on the final day of the last millennium. Yeltsin's rule oversaw the end of the Soviet Union, the largest experiment in state socialism in history, and the beginning of the modern-day Russian Federation, a capitalist country with questionable democratic credentials. If you have heard of Yeltsin, you will probably know him as a drunk. Indeed, Yeltsin struggled with alcohol dependency throughout his time in office, leading to a series of embarrassing gaffes. Once, as an orchestra was playing during Yeltsin's visit to Germany, the Russian president memorably began dancing drunkenly and pretended to conduct the orchestra. However, such amusing moments conceal the decay and ruin that Russia experienced on Yeltsin's watch. The transition from Soviet socialism to Western capitalism and democracy was challenging, with living standards in Russia falling more dramatically than Western living standards during the Great Depression of the 1930s. All too often, as Russia staggered from one crisis to another, Yeltsin seemed oddly detached from the country's problems, unable to provide the stability his citizens craved, and paving the way for the strong state authoritarian rule of Vladimir Putin. In 1999, the year Yeltsin resigned the presidency, his approval rating was just 6%. However, for many, the Yeltsin of 1991 will always be remembered fondly as the man who did more than any other to consign the Soviet Union to history and gave Russians the chance to live in a free society. My guest for today's conversation is Dr. Mark Berenson, who works at the Russia Institute of King's College London. Mark is an old lecturer of mine, and in 2019, he published the book Taxes and Trust, which is an examination of the different fates of Russia, Ukraine and Poland in the post-communist era. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Boris Yeltsin. Morning, Mark. How are you? Doing great here. Thanks. Brilliant. You're in London? I'm actually in Brighton, and they're starting to pick up the garbage after the strike, so I'm, <laughs> it's going to be a great week. <laughs> oh, good. You must, be re- you must be really relieved. I am, yeah. You've been studying the Soviet Union and its successor countries since before the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s, Mark. Um, in short, why is it this period of Russian history and economics that still interests you so much above the others? Um, it's a moment of, of great transition and great change. Um, speaking about Yeltsin and his legacy in particular, um, it uh, provided for great achievements in um, uh, moving towards uh, capitalism, democracy, and the end of an empire. Um, and for those of us looking on the outside in, um, there was great hope and great promise that this transition would enable Russia to join um, Western nations on equal terms as it 
democratic capitalist state. And the welfare and the welfare of, of so many people across the former Soviet Union that had become basically impoverished towards the end of the um, Soviet days uh, would um, be improved significantly. And perhaps not in reality, of course. The the leader of, of Russia at this time, as you said, has was Boris Yeltsin during the 1990s. He becomes the leader of a new country in 1991. Um, he's the subject of our conversation today. And he was born in 1931 during the Stalin era. He had a very difficult upbringing. His father was quite violent. His grandfather was accused of by the government of being a, a kulak, a, a sort of wealthy capitalist farmer, and he died in a, in a labour camp. Um, Yeltsin's membership of the Communist Party begins when he's about 30 in 1960, probably the time when the Soviet Union um, is at its most stable and economically prosperous. Can you describe for people who don't know much about the history of the Soviet Union, what was the country like during the early 1960s? Sure. Um, I just want to slightly correct you on uh, his grandparents. All four of them were affected by the Stalin terrors. Okay. And all four of them were actually uh, labeled um, as kulaks um, in one way or another. And a kulak was a slightly wealthier peasant. Um, and Yeltsin's family came from a small town uh probably equidistant between um, Kazan in Tatarstan and Yekaterinburg, or what was known as Serdlovsk in the Soviet days. And um, so it was a horrible um, background, um, perhaps not totally uncommon for a lot of um, citizens of, of, of Russia at that time. Um, Yeltsin um, in the, certainly came um, up in the system through uh, Sverdlovsk in Yekaterinburg, um, and in the 1960s, you had this this opening, this thaw that was occurring as a result of the fact that Stalin had left um, and had died in the scene in, in 1953, um, and uh, was replaced by Khrushchev, who was more tolerant of um, a greater degree of openness, certainly not to the extent that Gorbachev would push for in the late 1980s, but those who um, were of this 1960s sort of generation, the Sysiatniki, um, uh, which included both Gorbachev and Yeltsin, were deemed to sort of grow up in a time where they could question things a bit more and challenge things a bit more. And this was thanks to Khrushchev. Um, certainly once Brezhnev um, uh, came into power in the 60s, um, replacing Khrushchev, and Khrushchev was, was taken down basically from that position as head of, of the Soviet Union, um, more restrictions were in place and the thaw sort of began to refreeze, if you will. Um, but the generation of uh, Soviet leaders who sort of had their coming of age in the 1960s um, were able to be more questioning, critiquing, engage in more critical thought than ever before as to how the system is working or not working. Um, at the same time, of course, Yeltsin um, was part of the system. Um, he was brought into uh, Moscow um, in, in the uh, mid to late 80s by uh, Gorbachev to head the uh, local party committee of, of Moscow, which was the largest, of course, party committee in, in the country. And he had not 
buck the system in any way um, prior to that. So there, in many ways, there was no sign of him being um, a uh, or having a rebellious streak, if you will. And he was already well into his middle age, uh, middle ages when when he came to Moscow. And what was the context of Soviet politics by the mid nineteen eighties? Because it's quite a different situation to say twenty years prior, in lots of ways, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, you had a, politically, you had a process in which um, three Soviet leaders passed away within a year or two of each other. And this um, created a sense of sort of uh, political unease, um, perhaps affecting some sense of, of self-legitimacy of the communists at the start of the system. So in March 1985, Gorbachev, who was quite a um, relatively young uh, man in his, I believe, 60s, um, compared to, no, he would have been in his um, 50s, rather, um, compared to uh, uh, the other leaders who had been um, quite sickly. Um, uh, he was a different character altogether. And when Gorbachev came to power, began to realize that the system was not working, the economy was not doing well, and he recognized that, that a moderate changes, gradual reforms of the system were not going to fix the problems. So he set about undertaking two key policies. One is called perestroika and the other is called glasnost. Perestroika was economic restructuring, changing of the bureaucrats, changing of the way in which um, there was some accountability in the systems so that uh, the economy could be moving again, eventually um, allowing for some private property to be tolerated in the, in the Soviet system. Um, and glasnost, was, which translates directly as openness, was about... Um, sort of more tolerance, more openness, be able to discuss things. And as a result of this, especially with respect to Glasnost, the system sort of developed a problem because under Glasnost, it became possible for people to question the Soviet state, to question especially Stalinism, and learn about all the crimes and publicize the crimes of Stalinism that took place in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and early 50s. And once that was done, once it was possible to critique the Stalin years, some people began to realize they could critique the Lenin years. And there was a play, for example, by Mikhail Shatrov um, on the Moscow stage about this time called Onward, Onward, Onward. And the main character in this play gets on the stage and says, look, we've uncovered the problems uh, that were inherent in the Soviet system under Stalin. Let's just move forward now and onward with um, Marxism, Leninism, and, and, and building uh, communism, and don't consider the crimes and issues of Lenin. But the problem is the cat was sort of already out of the bag. Once you allow for this sort of open discussion and open dialogue, the whole legitimacy of the whole system became sort of undermined because you could question whether Lenin himself was responsible for so much of the crimes that happened at the beginning of the country's foundation. And if you could question the foundation of the country, you could question the whole system itself. And how does Yeltsin react to, or some might say take advantage of, this, um, I suppose, quite destabilizing situation? So... Yeltsin begins to feel, begins to recognize that Gorbachev isn't moving fast enough. 
And he also sees a political um, opportunity for himself to critique Gorbachev's speed with respect to the reforms. And in doing so, take away the sort of liberal branch of those who were within the Communist Party that wanted change and leave Gorbachev, who used to be sort of at the center between the liberals and the conservatives within the Communist Party, together only with the conservatives. And this wasn't a good sort of sort of political basis for, for Gorbachev himself to stand on, but more so um, Yeltsin recognized that you need to have radical sort of change happen and that sort of small steps were not going to be needed. So initially he, well, he was a member, non-voting member of the Politburo and was, was obviously um, a leading communist. He uh, initially withdrew from government positions. Um, then as Gorbachev uh, began to um, recognize that he, Gorbachev himself could not get legitimacy or support for his reforms, the economic reforms it's been undertaking. So Gorbachev opened up the political system, began to have elections that could be free and uh, contested even during the, the Soviet, late Soviet period. As a result, Yeltsin ran for office and eventually became head of the uh, Russian Federation in um, June 1991. And as a result of that, Yeltsin got a political base on which he could, basis of support for which he could stand to push forward for more sort of radical things. And this is a problem because it's created two competing power blocks within the same country. You've got the, the old Soviet Union still led by Gorbachev, but you've also got this new state within a state which has a mandate led by, led by Boris Yeltsin as the... 80s ends and the 90s starts. How does this situation end such that by 91, only one of those two power blocks, as it were, is still standing? I mean, obviously, there are many countries in the world in which um, there is a leader of the entire country and then provinces or subnational units um, sure. have governors or, or presidents um, who work um, well with within the whole system. Yeltsin's mission was, he recognized along that period of time that what needed to be done was radical economic reform because the population was, was not doing well um, socioeconomically. And he also recognized that not only should the republics of the former Soviet Union have the right to secede um, uh, from the Soviet Union, but that Russia, the Russian Federation itself had the right to secede. And he made sort of this nationalist plea for seceding based upon um, the right to succeed, as well as um, pushing for economic, um, more radical economic reforms. And this is what sort of makes Yeltsin the key figure, no matter what happens after this. 1991 is the year in which um, Yeltsin seeks to change the system from communism to a market, capitalist market economy, seeks to change the, the country from an empire to a nation state, and do so without claiming any sort of ethnic nationalism. And then thirdly, um, he becomes elected, the first sort of uh, elected, democratically elected leader in Russia's history. And so he's moving this triple transition. He's at the center of those three um, uh, changes. And 
when by the end of 1991, sort of the climax of this, um, Yeltsin gets together. He, he, he invites um, the leaders of several of the other former Soviet republics who were then part of the Soviet Union together to a, a dacha, if you will, in um, western Belarus in the Bieloveja forest, which is the oldest um, uh, forest still in existence in Europe. It's also um, shares um, land in Poland as well. Well worth a visit. Um, uh, very beautiful part of the continent. And um, while there was a lot of vodka and drinks consumed at this Dacha meeting, he convinces them all that they, they should each sort of claim the right to succeed, that they should sign um, in, sort of in declarations of independence. And when this happens, and Yeltsin does the same as well for, for on behalf of the Russian Federation, Gorbachev is left to be president of a country, the Soviet Union, that had no member states. And so he was no longer head of really anything. So by the end of the year, he uh, stepped down, I think December 25th, 1991, he steps down as um, uh, leader of the Soviet Union. And immediately in January 1992, the shock therapy and the radical economic reform program that Yeltsin uh, was uh, in favor of uh, got started with the help of uh, some liberal Russian economists like um, uh, Gaidar and yeah. uh, it's worth I think at this point just reflecting on the f dissolution of the Soviet Union given the huge number of, of ethnic minorities different national groups that claimed independence in, in a relatively short period of time the fact that of course, the, the dissolution wasn't bloodless. There were definitely conflicts that arose as a result of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But the relative lack of bloodshed is amazing in lots of ways, don't you think? Because I always look at it and think that it's remarkable that there weren't more problems that arose as a result of this. Well, I, I suppose you could look at this um, lack of violence issue from a different number of different ways. For one, um, there was violence in Tbilisi and mm -hmm. Vilnius and Gorbachev, who was really um, mostly taking a hands-off position. He did send troops into those places and there was some small bloodshed. And the other thing is, and, and yes, it was remarkable that at the very moment of the time, and this was probably credit to, to Yeltsin because he argued that the Russian Federation had the right to secede, not on ethnic national terms, but on um, sort of national terms, nation state terms. And uh, so this was a much more sort of tolerant dissolve of the empire than what you perhaps saw in the former Yugoslavia. Um, and, and the reason was that Yeltsin pushed forward for succession with reform and uh, that did not take place immediately in the former Yugoslavia. Um, further, though, long term, if you think about sort of the last several decades, there's been a lot of violence. There's been a lot of war in, um, in this part of the world. You may say it's a delayed reaction to the, to the breakup of the Soviet Union. Certainly a lot of the motive of uh, Putin in terms of his involvement in the near abroad, those countries that were part of the Soviet Union that are, have become independent since then um, is done out of the sort of belief that what happened in the 90s was wrong, 
the breakup of the Soviet Union was wrong, that Russia, unfortunately, and, and with great regret, lost a lot of its sort of legitimacy in the world stage because it lost all of these um, former Soviet lands. And so the sort of, it's been described as a person who has lost a limb and still believes the limb is there. And um, Russians look with regret to the fact that a lot of the former Soviet territories are not part of their um, empire, if you will, anymore. And I think that that is a strong reason for a lot of the violence since um, 1991. But there's also been other causes as well. There's been ethnic nationalist uh, violence, certainly between Azerbaijan and yeah. Armenia. And um, one can qualify a lot of the other um, conflicts around the Soviet perimeter as being related to more than just Russia's involvement. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fair enough. I, I, I wouldn't deny that there's been a lot of violence since, of course. But I, I mean, what I mean about the fact that it's amazing that there wasn't more bloodshed is that in the moment of 1991-92 that there wasn't ethnic violence on the level of, say, Yugoslavia or the partition of the British uh, Raj, for example. No, look at the situation that's been occurring in the last couple of years in, in Belarus. Um, we find that while there hasn't been full-blown war there, there's been some violence on the part of the state as uh, Lukashenko has tried to um, maintain his power there, even after losing uh, an election. And at the same time, this is a struggle of something that never got fully resolved yeah, absolutely. when the Soviet yeah. Union fell apart. So whether you call it sort of, you know, pangs of phantom, phantom pangs of lost limbs, or whether you talk, talk refer to it as um, a crisis um, that has been sort of slowly boil, coming to a boil over um, the last few decades, this is a period of time in which we're seeing um, a transition that's still occurring. Kind of like after a volcano erupts, there'll still be some land movements afterwards, even after the main eruption has sort of faded down. And, um, you know, one wonders, we wonder, because we're in the middle of it right now, as to when um, things will become more resolved, borders will be respected completely, and, um, and, and made finite. The Soviet Union, as you said, is gone by Christmas 1991. Yeltsin's the president of an independent country, the Russian Federation. Um, this is a country that advances the principles of Glasnost and Perestroika and is, is determined to transition to a democratic capitalist model. Um, but Russia's transition to being a sort of Western-style capitalist democracy in the 90s doesn't go well. No, it doesn't. And for Yeltsin's part, um, it's not really clear to what extent he understood the nature of the economic reforms process. Um, he regarded essentially when the economic reforms were to take place, the beginning of 1992, that they would benefit the population as a whole. He didn't conceive of there being pockets of society that would benefit and other pockets of society that would uh, really not benefit. Um, um, so those who benefit at the beginning seem to be benefit throughout the whole process. 
um, crowding out the losers, if you will. Yeltsin did not think in those terms. Of course, maybe in retrospect, not many people sort of did until the you know late 1990s. But the two aspects of the economic reform programs that had the sort of uh, biggest salience that had the biggest impact was this sort of macroeconomic stabilization um, series of financial reforms, but also the privatization process. And the privatization process, in many ways, benefited a group of insiders, those who were in control of factories, of firms, um, those who had the knowledge as to what was being sold when and where were able to take part in these um, auctions that were in many cases rigged and enabled um, a small group of uh, winners to emerge that controlled a large portion of the economy. And of course, that privatization process, which for an economist on paper sounds great because economists recognize the need to just create property. doesn't matter who uh, out in society is a uh, receiving that property or is the owner of that property, but by the mere fact that property is created in a system where before all of the property was owned by the state, all the factories, all the enterprises, all of the firms are owned by the state, suddenly you have owners who would have a real interest in making sure that their companies, their firms would become profitable. This was viewed as heralded at the beginning of the 90s as a great thing, but by the end of the 90s, it was realized that um, only a small portion of the population benefited from this. And this enabled the rise of the oligarchs, which also really came into their own with the loans for shares um, agreement that happened in, um, just before Yeltsin's re-election in 1996. And the loans for shares agreement was that, that the uh, oligarchs loaned small amounts of money to the state. They really just gave the state some money because the state needed money and Yeltsin needed money as well for his re-election campaign. Um, and at the same time, uh, they took shares, they took ownership of state, big state firms, which were far more valuable than what they were um, um, giving in return for that. And this sort of created the mega oligarchs of sort of Hodorkovsky, um, Berezovsky, and, and the others who um, we look back as sort of the, at the 1990s as sort of the main sort of economic powerhouses that, that were created from this new transformation to um, some form of market capitalism. Was this corruption, Mark, or was it the way that the system was designed to work? I think that a lot of the questions with respect to what happened being corrupt or non-corrupt um, may be taken from a sort of an outsider's perspective without necessarily considering whether things were being done in accordance with the laws at the time. The problem with the whole transformation in the 1990s is that there wasn't much institution building. Judiciary wasn't up and running to adjudicate property disputes, adjudicate what the law meant. And at the same time, you had laws that were held over from the Soviet era at the same time that some new laws were being created, such that it was a very um, uh, uncertain time as to what where things stood on a legal basis. And as a result of that, people who were in the right place at the right time were able to, to uh, profit from rent-seeking opportunities. 
you know, if the, the rules of the state, for example, were that from the Soviet era, say that if, if for example, uh, a, a barrel of oil cost a dollar on the internal Soviet market. So if you're a Soviet firm and you're buying from, from another firm a barrel of oil, you pay a dollar, basically a dollar for it. But if you once the Soviet Union goes away, th these prices still stood at the same time that the borders were opening up, such that if you had access to buy a barrel of oil for a dollar, you could then ship it across the border, Germany, elsewhere farther, and sell it at the world price, which is $30, $40 a barrel at the time. And, make huge and so profits. that's a huge um, profit margin. Um, and it was the lack of sort of, or the inability of the legal system, both in terms of the parliamentary parliament, the Duma passing laws, but also in terms of having um, the court system set up to independently arbitrate things um, that enable these things to happen. And basically the, the, the main failure that, that those who have evaluated the economic transition in Russia and elsewhere at the time was that the shock therapy, the radical economic reforms that brought forth this privatization process quite rapidly and quite soon at the beginning of the transformation brought forward some of the needed macroeconomic uh, reforms to stabilize the economy. Uh, did not really create new institutions. These things take time. Giving out um, shares of a state company it, it can be done relatively quickly. Building the whole legal system takes a while. What is the social effect of the economic crisis that unfolds in Russia during the 1990s? Because it's worth pointing out quite how much the economy shrank in Russia during the 90s. I think it, I think it was, it was 56% the size of what it had been in 1989 by 1999. I mean, what, what is this, what are the social effects of this? So the depression that took place in 1990s Russia and, and in other countries as well in the region was far worse than the depression that took place here in the UK and the US and other Western countries in the 1930s. You can imagine if your grandparents or great grandparents um, uh, have relayed about what it was like going through the 30s and how they were sort of became much more frugal minded and not wanting to spend money as a result of the, the hardship that happened in the 1930s. It was far worse in um, Russia Ukraine and, and other states in the 1990s. And as a result of this, you have both um, horrendous poverty, dra drastic decline in life expectancy, um, down to something like 58, 59 years old, roughly for men, um, by the end of the decade. And, uh, and that also sets the stage politically for um, the Putin presidency to take off. And as it does with the um, same, uh, at the same time as uh, oil prices becoming much higher in the early 2000s, the economy begins to pick up, um, which um, perhaps rightly so, you know, People assume it's related to the fact that Putin has met, undertaken some major reforms that are they're yeah. working to the benefit of the population. 
the end of the Yeltsin presidency comes off the back of this depression in the 90s. It's quite, it's fittingly quite chaotic. It sort of corresponds very well to what the rest of his presidency was like. Why does Yeltsin leave office? He leaves office um, New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1999, in a speech to the um, country that was actually taped earlier that, that morning. And he has a very interesting, remarkable speech because he, he believes that he has done what he could do, but at the same time he apologizes and asks for forgiveness of the population of the country for what has happened. And this isn't something that sort of we see leaders doing, especially when they <laughs> step down. No. Um, uh, he had also tried out several different prime ministers to uh, and hired and fired a number of them over the recent years and believed that um, Putin was the person to take charge. And he, by resigning on December 31st, 1999, he was able to have the elections for president, um, which Putin would stand, be moved up from June to March 2000, um, a shorter period of time for the campaign, enabling Putin to have more likely uh, odds of winning, um, benefit from being um, both prime minister in 1999 and then from January 1st, 2000, um, acting president. In addition, this also takes place after the Second Chechen War has, has begun. And this war, Yeltsin be, sort of agreed to, in many ways, this was a, a, a policy choice of, of Vladimir Putin um, um, in reacting to what was perceived to be at the time domestic terrorism within Russia in uh, late summer of 1999. And um, Yeltsin probably went along and believed that this war should, should commence because he felt as if he would get a better deal out of Chechnya than what the way in which the 1994 to, to 96 um, first war in Chechnya had achieved. In many ways, looking back on um, 1999, it's a very consequential year for, for Russia. And it's sort of a, a opposite bookend to the triple achievements that Yeltsin had uh, made at the beginning of the 1990s, you know, dissolving the empire, um, making Russia a, a nation state, um, starting economic reforms, drastic sort of radical manner, and also uh, uh, starting democracy in the country by um, becoming the first leader to be elected in Russia. So this all comes undone both because of the war in Chechnya, which becomes extremely nasty in the ensuing um, months, but also um, horrific um, death toll. And at the same time, um, he has selected Putin. And he selected Putin in a manner in which he cannot take him out of office the way he could with his previous prime ministers. And that was a choice that may have felt right, obviously felt right for him at the time, but something that he may well have um, thought differently about during his retirement years. If we just look at Yeltsin's presidency through the prism of, of the Putin years, Putin's somebody who in lots of ways receives a lot of bad press 
in the West, and rightly so. Um, but his appeal is based on something that Yeltsin was never really able to provide Russians, which is stability and control. And rightly or wrongly, a lot of Russians think that he's well-placed to deliver those things. And I'm not a supporter of Putin, but I'm never really more sympathetic to him or understanding of him than when I'm reading about Yeltsin because of what happened under his rule and because of the leader he was in many ways. He was not a particularly capable president. Does the ordeal of the 90s make you view Putin differently at all? I think that there are things that Yeltsin did and didn't do. Um, he's a sort of a character in paradox, as um, Timothy Colton um, describes him in um, his uh, 2007 biography of, of Yeltsin. There are things that Yeltsin did not do that would have been benefited and enabled his achievements to have far lasting impact beyond the 1990s. One was, of course, the economic reform process, which was little, not as well understood by most people, quite frankly, at the very beginning. Um, and secondly, he did not engage with parliament to have a, sort of a basis for political support. The, those few allies he found in parliament, he actually took out and put as part of the executive branch, which didn't make parliament any more um, sort of uh, flexible towards him. Um, and and there was this horrific clash between the executive and legislative branches in October 1993 that ended with Yeltsin as president calling on uh, the tanks to fire upon the parliament building in central Moscow as a way of resolving that crisis. Um, again, institutions, perhaps a stronger constitutional court system may have been helpful there. Um, but he also didn't make a political party. He didn't create a political party. He didn't believe he needed to be involved in that. So in many ways, he pushed forward sort of in a very radical way um, to, to have a break with the past on many key areas, but didn't do sort of the um, undertow work, if, so to speak, you call it, to enable that process to have greater legs beyond the 1990s. The reforms led to some horrific um, economic consequences for the population. It just cannot be under understated as to how uh, Russians did suffer in the 1990s and rightly so regard that era and, and Yeltsin being in charge of that era as being responsible for it. But Yeltsin also was able to rally back and um, get reelected. He stopped a challenger who was a communist in 1996 um, from being elected, um, began that year with popularity ratings of just 10% in January 1996, and soon by June was able to um, be reelected. Um, great help and support from the media and the oligarchs and others as well, of course, but nevertheless, he um, pushed for um, sort of putting sort of further nails in the coffin of communism. He didn't. He wanted never to go back to that. I really like that idea of a character of paradoxes. I think that works very well because there are 
things about him which I think are notable, maybe commendable actually. But at the same time, you have always, you always get this impression with him of, well, why don't you follow through on things? Why can't you do detail? Why can't you sort of get anybody to work with you? You get that. I I got that impression of him when I was reading about him, certainly in the later nineties. I think with Putin and him, you you really have to view them alongside each other in the two eras because they're kind of a first and second chapter of 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 what will what hopefully will be a quite a long Russian Federation free of, of communism. Um, I mean, the reason I started the podcast with a kind of truncated history of the Soviet Union is that Yeltsin's career as a party member and then as a politician kind of spans the decline of the Soviets and the Russians as a global force. Um, where do you think Russia will be in 20 years' time as a as a force upon the world stage and as an economic unit? I hesitate big time to make any sort of predictions in regards to that. I will say that myself and a lot of my contemporaries who, who began in the 1990s, thinking at the wonderful opportunities the Elson had before them in recreating the country, um, putting uh, opportunities to, to get rid of poverty, um, get rid of a lot of hardship, and also make for um, a democratic capitalist system. I never would have thought 30 years later or so that, that we would be in the situation we are now when we look upon Russia today. And so this, I think that Russia 2021 is not a place that people could have accurately, I think, predicted in 1991. Um, so I, I don't know where Russia will go. In fact, I don't even know where, you know, <laughs> the UK and the US and other countries are going to be 20 years off from now. Um, this Yeltsin was a character who thrived on crisis and responded to it. And he didn't follow up, per se, on all the details, but that wasn't the type of person he was. And one can only wonder if Russia, if the Russian Federation had a different political system, um, and there's been oh, much discussion in the, in the decades following that parliamentary systems did the job of implementing reform and getting the economy um, and democracy moving much better in the Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union than did presidential systems. And so if Yeltsin was prime minister or sort of a, a president um, head of state that was like a head of state more than just um, uh, a politician at the top. It's possible that there would have been other characters, other people involved in um, government that would have been able to follow up with, with um, on these details with greater authority um, than took place in a presidential system. Moreover, um, uh, you know, all of this is hindsight, of course, but um, in order to sort of ameliorate the differences between the winners and losers of economic reform, um, many have felt that a parliamentary system would be much more successful. And certainly um, Yeltsin may have been, Yeltsin was the, the zenith of his uh, sort of power and popularity in 1991. 
he um, not only was elected in June to become president of the Russian Federation, the first democratically elected leader, but he also um, uh, stood on top of the tanks in August 1991 and stood down the uh, putsch, the, this coup attempt, and, and saved yeah. Gorbachev as well at the same time. And at the end of the year, um, enabled the peaceful demise of the Soviet Union, such that the biggest chunk of it, um, the Russian Federation, was something that he could lead. Um, Perhaps six months, a year after that, and this happened certainly in um, Central and Eastern Europe, that once reforms were made, there was a change in parliament in the composition of um, who was uh, running the country um, legislatively, and therefore um, that may have, uh, if that was to be done in a parliamentary system in Russia, Yeltsin may not have lasted as long as he did into the 1990s. Presidential systems have fixed terms of office. Parliamentary systems do not. And when there is a crisis in a parliamentary system, more often than not, it enables the opportunity for uh, the leader to be changed, either by the ruling party or either by an election decided by the public. It's been a it's been a really good conversation today, Mark. I've I've enjoyed uh, talking about uh, Yeltsin. If people want to explore this more, they want to see more of you, or listen to more of you, or read more of you, uh, where should they go? So I came out with a couple of years ago with a book called Taxes and Trust, um, from coercion to compliance in Poland, Russia, and Ukraine, and this really illustrates the three trajectories that three different states took in leaving um, state socialism and how they built new institutions in order to govern. um, And they have different outcomes in their ability to govern based upon those decisions. Um, So I recommend that. That's available from Cambridge University Press, and you can find it um, on on their site to to read. uh, f- free to download. Um, and uh, I'm based at the Russia Institute at King's College, London, and we'll be happy to engage with any listeners from there. Perfect. Thank you very much, Mark. Cheers for your Thank time. you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get updates whenever new episodes are released. If you're just on that last stretch of your commute to or from work, or have a spare two minutes, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help the podcast grow.